points of revelation that seem to hit home for some. And I've come tonight thinking that uh, there will be revelation and understanding, not because of me, but because of the Word of God. And we are going to talk about the oneness of God. And I start with the oneness of God uh, in my personal life, having grown up as an apostolic Pentecostal. But it really was not until I went to Bible college that I could look back and say, you know what, I didn't really receive the revelation until Bible college. And uh, another difference that you might find interesting when it comes to the oneness of God is this. I don't like to talk about it just on an academic level. I don't want to talk about it uh, verse after verse, reference after reference, write the paper about it, submit it, get your passing grade, and move on. I want to, hopefully by the end of tonight, be able to answer, or you be able to answer this question, is what did God, robing himself in flesh, do or accomplish for you personally? And one more question, and I asked the class this, is if you were the only human being alive and it took the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross to cover your sins, to provide for you salvation, do you think that you as an individual were worth Jesus Christ coming just for you? And if the answer to that question is not yes, then I hope that there's revelation that comes to you uh, about the value, uh, value that God places upon you. And so, but the more important question is, is why would God come in the flesh, and what did that do for me personally? And so, let me start with kind of my story. Went to Bible college, grew up apostolic, Pentecostal, as I said. And it was not until, and you'll laugh at this, but I did not receive the revelation of the oneness of God out of the Bible. I actually received it out of a fictional book. <laughs> now, thankfully, it was written by, written by an apostolic author. And uh, for, if you're interested, that book is called Operation Daybreak. And it's written by Dave Norris, who was my professor of the Oneness of God class. And that book follows a military theme in which the commanding general of the army uh, became a private himself. Now, if you understand what I just said, the whole oneness lesson is over. But uh, when I understood that the commander of the entire army in that fictional book became a private himself, rose up through the ranks, uh, lived a lifestyle of leadership as an example for the other uh, members of the military, <clears throat> I recognized, wow, it really was God himself that came for me. And so that's where it blew my mind. Then I had to go back to the beginning. Like, wow, if I say I'm apostolic, did I really understand this? And I went all the way to the, to the beginning and began to dive in and study it. And then, of course, I had to go through the whole thing again when we started getting into the Purpose Institute course because they started presenting questions and it made me really dive in. So what I want to present to you is a lesson on the oneness of God but I believe that there are two parts to it. We can talk about, and we will, God in Christ. But my personal view is that that's only half of oneness. Because if we stop there and we don't talk about Christ in us, we've missed probably the most important part. So we're going to talk about God in Christ. But I want to talk about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's start by going, as I found, the, the best place to start is at the beginning. So, Genesis 1-1. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. Now, this is going to be very basic to start with, but let's start there. In the beginning, God. We don't know what happened prior to Genesis 1-1. Our finite minds cannot comprehend that. You know, what was God doing, you know, before, before God? What was God doing before Adam and Eve, before the garden? All of that. I think the reason God starts with Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, he said, because prior to that is just me. You won't understand it anyway. But we start there, and we understand that everything begins with God. Everything starts with his mindset, his, his, his pattern, way of thinking, all of that. But let's jump into the New Testament. We're going to look at John 4 and 24. <clears throat> and this is where the scripture says God is a spirit. Now, the, the word or the letter A is not really included in the original text. So what it's really saying verbatim is God is spirit. So if you put those two together, you'll find that in the beginning, God, what he existed as in the beginning was spirit. So when we talk about the oneness, we're going to have to get into you know, the, the, the typical titles that we refer to as father, son, and spirit. But let's look at the beginning. In the very beginning, it was the spirit that existed. We're not talking about the Father. We're not talking about the Son yet. We're talking about strictly spirit. In the beginning, God. And God is spirit. So from the very beginning, we know that the spirit existed. 
Now, the problem with a spirit in our finite thinking, in our human uh, life that we live, is we can't see spirit, we can't touch spirit, we can't know spirit. We believe it exists because the Bible says it does. And we've seen some people with some bad ones. (laughs) But that's about it. It's not something that we can... Uh, My wife is going to kick me later. But we cannot see spirit. We don't know spirit. And so from the beginning of time, we've seen a God who tries to relate to people in a way that they cannot see, they cannot touch, they cannot feel, they can't do anything. It's just strictly spirit. And when you cannot see spirit and yet spirit is talking to you, there is a divide between how that God who is a spirit relates to man. And so all throughout the Old Testament, you see passage after passage talking about the nature of God in such a way that it recognizes that he is a spirit, which is somewhat lofty and distant that really cannot relate with man. So let's start with Exodus. Exodus 33. This is Moses looking at the Lord and he's saying, show me your glory. What he's literally asking is, show me the very essence of who you are. Show me your very nature. When you talk about the glory of God, you're talking about the the raw essence of everything God is, the best. And really, we cannot put words to it. We really cannot describe the glory of God. But I think deep uh, within each and every one of us, uh, if we have a desire to see the glory of God, what we're asking for is, God, show it all to me. I want to see everything. Don't leave anything out. If there's power, I want to see power. If there's royalty, if there's majesty, if there's splendor, I want to see everything. This is what Moses was asking for. Lord, show me your glory. I don't want to see bits and pieces of it. I want to see everything. But God's response to him that day was, I cannot show you all my glory, but I will make my goodness pass before thee. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. But lastly, he said, Thou canst not see my face, for thou shalt no man see me and live. Now, I won't get into it today, but I think that's a challenge that really determines how hungry you are. Because in Moses' case, I think he was willing to die if it allowed him to see the glory. And we see on the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe he got to see that. And it was worth dying for. But we see that what God was saying in this moment was that everything that you want to see, the raw essence of God's glory, the face-to-face, you cannot see or it's going to cause you to die. And we can get into various aspects of that, but I think at the very surface is uh, we get later when, when Moses did go into the presence of God, he came out and there was a glory about him that was radiating in such a way that it caused the people to turn away. So I think that just the radiance of it uh, would be enough to, to kill a man. Just the radiance of it. Let alone we're talking about unholy people approaching a holy God. And unholiness in the presence of holiness is definitely going to be something that can bring death quickly. John 1 and 18. John said, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. We can't see him. He's a spirit. 1 Timothy 6 and 16. Who only hath immortality, dwelling in light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see. And then in John 5 and 37, the Father himself which hath sent me, this is Jesus' own words, hath borne witness of me, ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. So when you talk about God in the beginning, God, a spirit, a spirit being that you cannot see, you'll never be able to touch, how in the world can you possibly relate when you are tangible, you can be seen, you can be heard? How do you relate to someone, a being out there that you cannot see and you really have not heard? It's really impossible. So what God had to do throughout time, throughout the Old Testament, is he chose to speak through prophets. Moses being one of the first. God raised up Moses, and you find that in Hebrews uh, 1, where the writer of Hebrews says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So from the beginning all the way till you get to the incarnation of Jesus, the only way that invisible God, spirit, can't be seen, can't be touched, could ever relate to man was by talking to people who were willing to hear through the voice of the Spirit and then them turn around and talk to the people that they were leading. But you talk about a God who is, who is distant, he's lofty, but yet he has desires, he has commands, he has a law. You get into the fact that when he's talking to Moses and Moses is turning around talking to the people, 
they get to the point where they tell Moses, you just go talk to God for us. You just tell us what he says. Because when we hear his voice for ourselves, the way that it thunders and we can't see him, we don't like it. You go talk to him. You just tell us what he says and we'll do what you say. We can't see him. We can't hear him. None of that. So God would show himself or speak through the prophets. So you have reference after reference. God also showed himself through uh, other means like theophanies or even in symbols. Uh, you have several passages in scripture, Genesis 32, where God showed himself as a theophany when he came and wrestled with Jacob. Now the Bible says that he wrestled there with a man, but you really get into that. It was the Lord himself that he was wrestling with. Now he manifested himself in a way where he could not see the very glory of God that would take his life, but he could be in the presence of God. So in other words, the very glory of God that would kill a man was veiled behind whatever means God manifested himself through. So you could be in the presence of God, but not at the, uh, the mercy, if you will, of everything God is in that moment. Another time is Genesis 18, where the Lord appeared himself to speak to Abraham uh, concerning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He came himself. He's the friend of God. God came down and talked with him, and he met himself with him. So again, this is another uh, theological theophany, as we call it, that he manifested himself in a way because this distant God who is spirit can't be seen, can't be touched, can't be heard. He comes down in a way where he can manifest himself in a, in a manner that would not cause the, the power of his glory uh, to have its effects. He also manifested himself throughout different symbols, the most important of which would be the Ark of the Covenant. I was preaching about this last week, but... Talking about worship. David was a man of worship and he was a man of taking care of the sheep. And so my message last week is about the two most important things is worship and people. And so when David became king, the, 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 the symbol of the very glory of God, the very presence of God was in that Ark of the Covenant. So there was a way that God would manifest himself. And he told the children of Israel, told Moses, he said, I want you to erect this, this Ark. And he said, upon it, you're going to put a mercy seat. And upon that mercy seat is going to be the place that I dwell where I can meet with the people. So you're not really going to see me. You're not going to see the Spirit. But I will manifest myself in a way where you can approach me, whether it's a high priest or the people themselves can approach me without seeing the glory of God. But in all those cases, all of them, they did not see the Spirit. They did not see God. They saw a manifestation of him. They saw something that was more of a, of a copy, if you will, more of a, of a likeness of, but they could not see the real thing. So how can you relate to someone that you've never seen? Now, I don't know about you, but I've never got involved in online dating. I'm glad that I've met one person, fell in love, and that was the end of the story. But I, I just, in my mind, cannot imagine, you know, meeting somebody online, especially when it comes across country. You've never seen them. You might have heard their voice, and you make a decision off of that. I can't further imagine having a relationship with, with, with God unless there was something that became personal for me that I could touch, sense, see, feel, hear that brought it home to me. That made me feel like this belongs to me. I can know him. I, I, I can become uh, aware of him. I can be in a relationship with him. And so this is what I see in the Old Testament is the reason that God had to uh, manifest himself in ways is because it wasn't just a man's desire to know God. But more importantly and probably more in quality, it was God's desire to know man, to be in relationship with man. And him looking down at an unholy people and him being a holy God, he recognized they can't come to me. And if they can't come to me because my glory will kill them, then I have to go to them. And my love is great enough that I'm willing to leave all of this glory and come down to them to show them I want you more than you know that, that you need me. So, he's a dangerous God though. Because when he did raise up the, the, the prophets, again, they, they, they turned away and said, you go talk to him. Nadab and Abihu, they have this, this is the, this is the picture of the, of the God that they can't see. This is his nature from their perspective. Nadab and Abihu, they offer strange fire upon the altar. And because they do that, they're instantly killed. So not only can they not see God, not only do they not want to hear his voice and they send Moses in their place, 
But now this God's law is bringing death upon people who violate that law. So if you're like me, I'm not going there anymore. I'm not going to approach him. I'm not going to talk to him. I, I, I don't really understand his nature. And so you see throughout history that the perception that God was trying to bring about his own nature uh, was probably misconstrued. Uh, misconstrued. It, was, it wasn't perceived correctly. I imagine it this way, that if you were to work for a large corporation, and you know it's somewhere at the top, there's a CEO. I used to work for FedEx. And uh, one time I, we got lucky that our CEO did come through and got to meet him. But imagine working for a large corporation. I mean, they've got 48,000 employees. You know they're the CEO at the top. And all you see is the mandates coming down, the new rules being put in place. And, and PTO is, you know, you now have to have a month's notice, no longer two weeks' notice. And, and we're going to cut this here and we're going to cut that there. And you think that guy at the top has got to be a jerk. <laughs> and then he comes through and he's the most down-to-earth guy. See, now you see the problem is... What's lofty and distant that you don't understand because you don't know is easily to be perceived as controlling, tyrannical, governing my life. He don't care about me. He doesn't love me. This is really what, what Old Testament Israel perceived God to be, and they didn't like it. This is what New Testament Israel perceived God to be, and they didn't like it. So when God came in the flesh, he was really trying to, to, to turn all that around. Trying to really show, this is really how much I love you. And the rules I put in place is for your safety and your protection. And, and, and really who I am, this nature that I have, is one that's willing to leave all of glory. And not just leave glory and come talk to you, but willing to suffer for you. And willing to die for you. And shed my blood for you. So when you look at Calvary, you're looking at God himself saying, I love you this much. There has to be a mediator. There has to be a go-between between the distant God that we cannot see, I cannot relate to. Because in reality today, when we lifted our hands in worship, I guarantee you weren't picturing the spirit in your mind that you were worshiping. Because you don't relate to that. You don't relate to something you can't see. But you relate to something when you're worshiping that, that is comparable to something you can't understand. And so whatever that is, maybe you were picturing the cross. Maybe you were picturing what Jesus looked like or something he has done for you. Whatever it is, it was something that was personal. I can relate to him because of something that has happened personally to me. I, I'm worshiping him because of what he's done in my life. Or I'm worshiping him because of the blessings. I'm worshiping him because he washed my sins away or, or he filled me with his spirits. So we're really worshiping what we understand and what we know. We're really not connecting with what we can't see. We don't relate to, to the spirit. So there has to be a mediator between God and you and I, man. And that mediator is Jesus Christ. The mediator is Jesus Christ. So what is the solution for unholy people to enter the presence of a holy God? Or how do I approach an unapproachable God who I can't see? How can we fulfill scripture then when the Bible says that we can approach his, his throne with boldness? Well, he's holy and I'm unholy. There has to be a mediator. There has to be a go-between. There has to be something that brings the holiness of God to the unholiness of man and provides a remedy in the process to allow them in the presence of that holy God. And that mediator, that go-between, is Jesus Christ. So number one, there is absolutely no way that unholy man could ever approach a holy God. This is why Jesus came in the flesh. This is why God robed himself in flesh. We cannot get to him, but he came to us. There's no way we could ever get to him. There's no way we could ever climb that. Paul wrote in the book of Galatians, he talked about the works of the flesh, and he said they're manifest, and they are these. And he went through the list, adultery, lasciviousness, fornication, idolatry, all this list. And what the works of the flesh is, basically man's effort to obtain spiritual things. It's works of the flesh. I'm trying to get there by my own means, by my own effort. He said you can't get there. And he said, to continue trying, you put the cross to an open shame. He said, what you really need to do is recognize God came to you. And when he came to you, he didn't just come, but he provided a way for you to meet him. He provided a way for you to become sinless and to be covered and to be justified. So there could be relationship. So without Jesus coming in the flesh, we would stand no chance to lift our hands in worship. We would stand no chance to ever speak in tongues when we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. 
we have no opportunity. So there had to be a mediator. And this is why 1 Timothy 2 and 5 said there is one God, one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 and 15. Now when you look at that man, Jesus Christ, here's what the Bible has to say about him. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? So what Jesus did by coming in the flesh is he took what you can't see, what is invisible, what is unapproachable, and he put it in something that we do understand, flesh. He wrapped it in flesh. The Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary, caused her to conceive, and of her was born Jesus Christ. So now you have something you can't see made manifest. It's now made visible. What I told them in the class is this, is we think about God. You know, what kind of nature does he have? You know, does he really have, you know, we think in Old Testament law, you know, it can't be really loving. can't really be compassionate. And I mean, Nadab and Abihu, you know, apparently died. But if you really want to understand the nature of who God the Spirit is, look at the nature of the one he came in. The one who was moved with compassion when he saw people who looked like they were without a shepherd. Look at the one who was willing to sit down with the publicans and the sinners and, and at the face of ridicule by the ones he actually came for. Look at that. Look at the one who was willing to be beaten in Pilate's hall with the cat of nine tails and, and have a spear thrust through his side and crown of thorns put upon his head. And that is the nature of the one you can't see. That is the love and the compassion of the one that you cannot put your hands on. It's the one who's loving. It's the one who died for you. And so what he did was is he took the invisible and he made it visible. He took what you cannot see and cannot know and he made it known. He's saying, you can't see this? Oh, let me put it in flesh. Now touch me. Now you can see it. Now you can handle it. Now you can hear it. So he is the image of the invisible God. The word image there is, is not just a copy. It is the very essence of. He came himself. He is God in the flesh. Here's what I like about verse 19 of Colossians. And it said, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. That word fullness is a really neat word. Because where we would talk about, you know, you go to the restaurant, I'm full. What you're talking about is, is the, the, the container is full. When he talks about fullness, he's saying in him all the fullness dwells. He's saying I'm the contents and the container. Literally. So this is not God sending someone else in his place. He said, look, I am the contents, and when I came down, I became the container. I'm one in everything. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. I am the contents, and I'm the container. And the word dwelleth is to house permanently. Now, I'll give this illustration is, I think a lot of people have this idea of God robing himself in flesh like water and oil mixing. If you were to take a glass of water and put some oil in it, the oil is just going to settle right on top. You could shake it for quite a bit, and you'll see it mix for a moment, but after it settles down, they're going to separate again. And I think a lot of people have this idea of, of deity and humanity of God that way. Well, you've got the deity, of course, that's, that, that's the oil, and you've got humanity that's just the water. And they mixed up, you know, the 33 and a half years that Jesus was on the earth, uh, but at some point in time, you know, they, they, they settled back down. And so let me ask you a few questions. We'll do a show of hands. When Jesus was on the cross and he was crying out, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Raise your hand if you think that was deity. Raise your hand if you think that was humanity. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Jesus is in, the, is in the ship with the disciples and it's tossing to and fro because of the storm. And they wake him up and they say, do something about this. And he steps to the bow of the ship and he says, peace be still. Was that deity speaking or was that humanity speaking? <laughs> Anybody? Raise your hand if it was deity. Raise your hand if it was humanity. All right. Got a divided house today. <laughs> Hopefully by the end of this, we'll come to a resolution. When Jesus turned the water into wine and his mother said, do what he says. And he said, go fill all the pitchers with water. And miraculously, it was turned to wine. Who performed that miracle? 
Was that God in the flesh performing that miracle? Or was that a man saying, I'm submitted to the will of God performing that? These are the questions that kind of divide. Is it, is it oil and water that mix together? What I would submit to you is this. If I had three glasses here this evening, and in one glass I had red water, water with red food coloring in it, and I took this one over here and it was blue, and I took both of them and I poured them together into a glass in the middle, you're going to end up with purple water. If you take that purple glass now and you pour half of it into the first glass and half of it into that second glass, are you going to have red and blue again? Are you going to have two glasses of purple? I believe that when Jesus came, God came in the flesh. He did not come to mix like oil and water and say, well, I'm going to be like you for a time and season, but then I'm going to disconnect and you go about your business. He said, when I came to be like you, I came to be like you. He 100% was God and 100% was man, never to be separated again. I believe when we spend, get to eternity and we stand looking at God in the face, you're going to be looking at humanity and you're still going to see the nail-scarred hands. You're going to see the scars on his back because that is God in the flesh that died for me. Never to be separated again. So the word dwelleth is to house permanently. In him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Dwelleth is permanence. He's there forever. And Godhead is referring to deity or the state of being. So all of the total quality of God resides in Jesus Christ. The indivisible, unapproachable, untouchable God who man could never feel, could never see, could never touch, none of that, became man to bridge that connection between a holy God and unholy man. So now we can feel him, we can know him, we can really understand him. Hebrews 1 and 3, I've read part of it. God who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, but hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. God sometimes get tired of things. And he apparently got tired of just speaking through the prophets. And he said, I want to talk to him for myself. So he robed himself in flesh. And whereas in times past, he spoke to people through the prophets. Now, robed in flesh, he's walking about. And he's able to touch people and heal people and speak to people himself. We're talking about a personal savior. We're talking about a God who, who left glory and came to us because of the love that he has for us. I don't know about you, but... I don't know if there's been a situation in your life where you were going through a hard time and it meant the world to you for someone to leave their home and travel just to be with you during your hard time. It means the world. Think about this. In this life that we live, in this finite humanity, in the struggles that we have, God could have just sent something, sent a care package, sent a note. He could have been just satisfied with that. Yeah, that's enough. I mean, by all, after all, he's God. He could have done whatever. He could have made whatever he did good enough. But it means so much more to know that the God of heaven came down to us, yeah. met us where we're at, yeah. found us in the muck and the mire, and reached his clean hands down into that nasty pit and grabbed us by the hand to pull us out. Yeah. And as Second First Peter 2 and 21 says, he suffered, leaving us for an ex as a... that better you didn't tell me about that mute button <laughs> turn it around this way without controversy great is the mystery of godliness god was manifested in the flesh justified in the spirit seen of angels preached unto the gentiles believed on in the world received up into glory second corinthians 4 and 6 for god who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about his nature a little bit. Not the nature of God the Spirit, but the nature of God in flesh. That nature. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, when you talk about that Word becoming flesh, and specifically the phrase dwelt among us, John is using the word dwelt intentionally because in the original language it means tabernacled. 
And to be tabernacled and to use that word, John is going back to the Old Testament and he's speaking to a congregation of people who understand everything about the tabernacle. And they understand how God manifested himself uh, in one instance, you know, in the glory cloud uh, in the tabernacle. And so they understood that. And so as a way to relate to them and help them understand that that same God became flesh, he used terminology that they already understood, tabernacle language. And so in the tabernacle, you had the, the, the veil and you had the, uh, the curtains. And, and when you looked on the outside of it, it was just a bunch of animal skins, nothing really to look at. I think that paints a picture of you and I when we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost is that, yes, we look different this morning, but we're all human. And, and until we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, there's really nothing much to look at. But when you receive the Holy Ghost on the outside, you look just like a human. Just like the tabernacle, just animal skins, there's nothing there. But when the glory comes down and changes you from the inside out, you may not perceive it on the outside, but you now have the God of glory residing in you. So you, I, I, I'm average. You're average. We're, we're just average people. We look pretty much the same. But when we have the Holy Ghost within us, it changes our DNA. It changes our makeup. It changes our identity. It changes everything who, uh, about who we are. And so it was in the tabernacle when, when it was just badger skins and goat skins and ram skins or whatever they used. It was just a tent. I, I, I would venture to say that the tabernacle tent was probably not much different than the tents that the children of Israel lived in. But what made it different was the fact that the glory of God resided there. And what makes a life different is when God resides there. When you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it changes your life forever. You'll never be the same again. So he was using that same language. He said, come on, guys. Just like you have uh, the tabernacle uh, and the glory came down. Well, this God that we serve, he is the word, the logos. He dwelt. He tabernacled himself among us. Meaning he came down and just like the glory in the tabernacle was covered by a veil, you see the same glory in that man Jesus and his flesh is the veil. So when you looked at that man, the Bible lends this idea that he wasn't really much to look at. Jesus Christ, you didn't run up to him and go, oh, oh look at you. you. You look different than the rest of us. I mean, your smile, uh, your teeth, brother, is just, you didn't say any of that. He looked like any other Jew of that day. What was different was what was radiating from the inside of him. And what's different about you and I is what we have on the inside of us. So he's just an average guy. And I'm not downplaying his, his deity, but in the humanity, he's just a Jew. He's no different than any of the other Jews. Because when you look on the outside, you're just seeing his flesh. You're not seeing the glory. Because if he were to come and reveal his glory, it would have killed everyone he approached. So he robed himself in flesh. The Bible says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. I've already quoted you. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, I believe that what was a mystery to possibly them then is no longer a mystery today. We can understand the nature of God in the flesh. And so the crux of the entire revelation that I received many years later in my life at Bible college stems from this passage, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. So, when this God robed himself in flesh, what he was charged with was blasphemy. It was blasphemy that took him to Calvary. It was the charge of blasphemy brought on by the Sanhedrin that took him to Calvary. Why? Because this was an average man in their opinion. This was just another Jew who was claiming to be God. And their law and their rules said no man can claim to be God. But what the writer of Philippians says is he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, literally, is when he came telling people, I am the I am. I am God. He was not committing identity theft. They thought he was committing identity theft. They charged him with it. But he said he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It was not identity theft. He was not lying. He was not trying to deceive when he said, I am God. I am the I am. But what he did was is he took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So I'm going to read this in the Amplified Version. Here's what it says. 
have this same attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. I want you to pay attention to that phrase. Because this is where it goes from God in Christ to Christ in you. Because if we separate God in Christ and say, well, that's oneness and, that, and that's where I'm going to stop. I'm apostolic. I believe in one God. And we don't go a little bit further and realize that that same God that was in Christ is Christ in us. We've missed out on half of it. The writer says, have this same attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. So whatever attitude Jesus had when he said, it's not robbery to be equal with God, but he took upon himself the form of a servant, he said, you can do the same thing. Now that sounds extremely sacrilegious because how can I say that I could ever be like God? How could I ever say that I could have the same nature as Jesus Christ? But I believe that what Jesus came for was to show us, I want you to be like me. Everything I do, I want you to do. Everything that I think and the way that I walk and the way that I live, I want you to do that. So here's a question to you. Here's, here's the, the, the potential, the challenging question. How much do you want to be like Jesus? I've heard Brother Stone King say this. You've got to make up in your mind how much you want to be like Jesus and how much of this life you're willing to give up to go for it. And if the answer to that question is, is how much can I be like Jesus... There's no limits. And that potential there is what drives me to search and to know how much can I be like Jesus. And since I don't know the end of that, I don't know the answer to that question, why am I going to stop pursuing? Why would I stop going after him? Why would I stop praying and reading his word and studying and getting to know his nature and wanting to be like him? If there's no limits to him, then there should not be any limits to my pursuit of him. So here's the Amplified Version. Although he existed in the form and unchanging essence of God as one with him, possessing the fullness of all the divine attributes, the entire nature of deity, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted as if he did not already possess it or was afraid of losing it, but emptied himself without renouncing or diminishing his deity, but only temporarily giving up the outward expression of divine equality and his rightful dignity. By assuming the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, he became completely human, but was without sin, being fully God and fully man. After he was found in terms of his outward appearance as a man for a divinely appointed time, he humbled himself still further by becoming obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, because he obeyed and so completely humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. There's key phrases I want to pull out of that. One, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted as if he did not already possess it. There's a term in theology called kenosis, which is related very directly to this passage. When God became flesh... And according to this translation, he emptied himself. The argument is over, well, what did he empty himself of? Did he stop being God? Uh, was he still God and, and some other kind of means of becoming man? And there's argument over that. What I believe, and I believe this translation brings it out, is not one point in time did he stop being God. So the emptying of it himself was not, okay, I've stepped into earth, leave God behind. Not at all. It was God manifested in the flesh. But when it came to how he was going to live, how he was going to carry himself, how he was going to operate, what I like this passage says is he became completely human but was without sin, be full in God, fully man. Let me find it here. <clears throat> he emptied himself without renouncing or diminishing his deity but only temporarily giving up the outward expression of divine equality and his rightful dignity. So... He could have come and said, I'm God, I'm going to come down here as God, I'm going to overthrow the Roman Empire, and we're going to establish my kingdom, and I'm going to do everything just like I would really like to do. <laughs> he didn't do that. But when he came, he relinquished, or he set aside, if you will, every God-like attribute, every quality that would make him God. Whatever you want to talk about. We talk about his omnipresence, talk about his omniscience. I believe he put all that aside and he said, if I'm going to become, come down here and be like them to reach them and to show them a way and to save them and I don't completely become like them, I'm giving them a false hope. So when he robed himself in flesh, 
he put aside every godlike attributes, if I could put it this way, that would give him an advantage over the men and women he was coming to save. So in my opinion, we talk about different stories. When Jesus was in the bow of the ship, I do not believe that was deity doing and exercising his authority that man can't do. Because the whole purpose of him being in the ship on that day was to teach the disciples, do as I do. When you're in the middle of your own storm, who's going to step to the bow of the ship? I'm coming to show you it ought to be you. And I'm a man like you. So if I can step to the bow of the ship and say, peace be still when the storm is raging, I want you to do the same thing. Matter of fact, there was a second occurrence of the storm. They're out in the ship by themselves. The first time, he started off in the boat with them. The second time, he's up on a hillside watching from a distance. And this is when he comes walking on the water. And here they are in the midst of the storm again. What they should have done and said, hey, guys, remember last time Jesus was in the boat with us? All he did was step to the bow of the ship and say, peace be still. I think we ought to do that. Well, they didn't do that. They got fearful again. And then out of fear, they look at this being walking across the water and say, who is it? And again, he had to exercise authority in front of them to show them as an example. Uh, come on, boys. I told you last time. This is what you ought to be doing. So in reality, when Jesus steps to the bow of the ship, he's not saying, I can do this because I'm God. He's saying, I want you to do like I do because I'm man. And I'm completely submitted to the will of the Father. I can do this because I've emptied myself. I can do this because I'm submitted to the one who sent me. And if I can do this because I'm submitted to the one who sent me, then you can do that if you'll submit to yourself to the one who sent you. This is really what we mean by being apostolic. We believe in the apostles' doctrine, the same doctrine that was given to them by Jesus Christ. I want to do what they did. I want to do what he did. I want to live the way that he lived. When Jesus was on the cross and he cried, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think we could all agree that that was definitely humanity speaking. Because I don't believe deity would suffer. But in Bible college, they were trying to get me to believe. I won't tell you who the professors are. They were trying to get me to believe that at some times it was deity speaking. and Sometimes it was humanity speaking. And after I left Bible college, I got to wondering about that. I'm like, if, if, if that's truly the case, then what biblical precedence can you give me that sets the boundaries to help me determine in every single story? Well, this one's deity, and this one's humanity, and this one's deity. And then furthermore, what rules do I need to live by that help me determine? Well, if I'm submitted, can I do that, or can I not do that? And so I spent quite a bit of time studying all the passages. Jesus laying hands on the sick, seeing them recover. When he told the... Uh, Many people, thy sins be forgiven me. That was the one thing I looked at and said, you know what? No, that, he got me right there. That, that, that was definitely deity. He said, thy sins be forgiven. Then I found the passage where he told the disciples, he said, go and forgive sins in my name. I said, well, that's all of them. There's not a single case that I could find in all of scripture where God says, I'm doing this, but you can't. Yeah. Laying hands on the sick, you can do it. Casting out demons, you can do it. There's nothing. There's no limits. Do as I do. So when I look at this passage and I see that Jesus emptied himself and became like a servant all the way to the point of death, I realized that it was not just God manifesting himself in flesh to kind of just meander through life and say, well, here's what you need to do and here's what you need to do over here. And no, you're doing it wrong. But he literally became me. He became you. Showed us verbatim, this is what you should do. This is how you should live. This is why Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ should be the epitome of the example that we follow. I love the apostles, but I want to be like Jesus. I love the prophets, but I want to be like Jesus. I want to know how Jesus lived. I want to know how Jesus loved. I want to minister like Jesus ministered. I want to reach people and change the world like Jesus changed the world. So this is the example that I used. I have this glass picture here. This is flesh, okay? <clears throat> may need a chair, actually. I'll borrow this chair real quick. That glass picture is going to be flesh. I'm going to raise it up here so I can reach it better. And in my pocket, I'm going to show you a deity. This is pretty cool. Never knew they, they made these here. I have a light bulb here. And uh, look at that. I have the Holy Ghost. My, my, my children like to do this here. 
that just tells you I got the Holy Ghost all over. <clears throat> this is just a battery-powered LED light bulb. You can plug it in, and the light power goes out. You can unscrew it and walk around your house and find where the kids are scared. This is deity here. So back to the beginning, God is a spirit. Can't see him, can't touch him. My view of omnipresence is not, let me just describe it this way. I believe that God has essence uh, and then he has omnipresence. If God has the ability to robe himself in flesh, then his omnipresence is not what I hear people typically describe it as. I believe omnipresence is, as David said, if, if I rise to the morning, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. Did that literally mean that God was in hell, that God was all those locations? I don't believe that his essence was. So you take this light bulb, for instance, and, of course, these lights are much brighter than this, but the very essence of this light is in the bulb. But omnipresence extends into the effects of that light. If we were to turn all the lights out in this building, you would see the, the power of this bulb. Again, not quite as bright as that, but you would see it would light up this room. So essence of God. God is a spirit. This is God. But the essence of God is in the bulb. But he has the ability to impact through his omnipresence wherever he goes. But when God became flesh, he took that very essence of who he was and put it inside of flesh. And so now you see God in flesh. What he could have done was just remained up here and let some of that omnipresence effect happen and say, go. Send the Son. But he didn't because we're oneness. We believe God became the Son and he robed himself in flesh. Now what I believe further from Philippians 2 and 6 is that if he emptied himself, that when that light, so to speak, moved from the heavens into the realm of the natural, and he said, I emptied myself, meaning I didn't use any of my godlike attributes to have an advantage. Here's the way I describe it. Analogies break down at some point, but God became flesh, but he emptied himself. He turned the light off. And so in those 33 and a half years while he walked this earth, he's just like you and I. You know, I have some of these passages where he told those to, to hey, go get the colt tied up. You know, it's at such and such place, and they go and get it. Well, he knew that because he was God. Uh, not according to Philippians 2 and 6. I think that was revelation, no different than you and I receive revelation. How did he know that the woman at the well was going to be there? And how did he know that she had five husbands? According to Philippians 2 and 6, it's revelation. Because if he could in those moments say, oh, I know that you have had five husbands, or, or I know where that colt's tied up because I'm God, then why was he on the cross not saying, God, I know exactly what you're doing, I'm okay. He wasn't because he was 100% humanity. He became like us. He was 100% flesh. So, in other words, using the analogy is he became flesh and then turned the power off. That didn't mean he stopped being what he could be. He said, I'm just not going to use it. The Bible says he could have called 12 legions of angels to get him off that cross. But he said, if I do that, I have an advantage over the men and women that I came to save. I want them to see me as a perfect example of the life that they should live. So the light bulb gets turned off. Matthew 27, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? John 2 and 9, when he turned the water into wine. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, in the bow of the ship, he says, peace to the storm. That was not the light turned on saying, because I'm God. That was a man in flesh saying, do as I did. I'm in flesh just like you, but I'm submitted. I submitted myself. I came for one purpose. I came for one design. I came to robe in myself in flesh because I had a destiny. I had a purpose. I have something to accomplish, and it requires me being submitted even unto death, the death of the cross. So he emptied himself. In the bow of the ship, peace be still. It was a man submitted. Turned the water and the wine, it was a man submitted. When he's on the cross saying, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was a man, just like you and I, suffering the agony and the pain that you and I would suffer, the agony that you and I would suffer if we were in the same condition. The Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. That means that he had the ability to sin. He could have been tempted just like you and I are tempted. But because of his submission, his flesh being submitted to the will of the Father, he had the ability to say, Satan and I have nothing in common, therefore he has no power over me. 
Why is he saying all that? Because he's looking at the people that he's leading and saying, if there's nothing that I have in common with him and he has no power over me, then you can live in such a way where the enemy has nothing in common with you and has no power over you. You can be at the bow of the ship and you can say, in this tumultuous storm I'm going through, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know to turn to the left or the right, but I can step in there and let what's in me dictate to the storm what's going to happen rather than the storm dictate to me what's going to happen inside of me. I can lay hands on the sick and see them recover. It's God manifested in the flesh. Christ submitted. John chapter 5, verse 19. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Here's the language that, that really confused the, the disciples, Pharisees. He said, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. 5.30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. He said, the reason I'm here is because I was, I was sent. And I was sent just to become like man. Become like them to every degree. Come like, become like them in every aspect of their life. I like to tell this to people about the Holy Ghost. God could have stayed in glory and just sent his spirit. Never come in the flesh. Never. He could have just sent his spirit. Say, hey, you want to know a little bit about me? Here, have a taste of it. How's it feel? We can be like, oh, that feels great, but, you know, never met you. What's the purpose of all this? And then when you're going through struggles and you're going through trials and you have the baptism of the Holy Ghost... Knowing that that Holy Ghost there is to keep you and to comfort you and, and, and to, to teach you, train you. This is what I like to tell people about the Holy Ghost. God manifested himself in flesh first. Then after ascending, he sent his spirit. So when I receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, I'm receiving the spirit of one who experienced the same life that I live. So when he says, I know what you're going through, he's telling the truth. When he says, I know how it feels, he's telling you the truth. He knows what the pain was like. He knows what suffering was like. He knows what the anguish and the anxiety was like. He knows what it was like to be rejected and to be ridiculed and to be spat on. He knows what it was like to be killed by people. And when he sends the Holy Ghost to us and we speak in tongues for the very first time, it is the same spirit that we receive, that experience all those things and saying, you're receiving something that knows life, understands life, and will get you through life all the way to the end. Why? Because it's been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Everything. He said, I told you and you believe not. He said, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them <clears throat> me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then in 10, chapter 10, verse 30, he said, I and my Father are one. John chapter 14, after Jesus had spent many years with them, he comes to them, and they're in a conversation, and Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us. And Jesus, after all these years he had spent with him, he's looking at them saying, you're asking me to show you the Father? Don't you not understand? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is where the God in Christ takes place. Because we can articulate academically, well, here's a scripture over here and here's a scripture over there. And I could point to you and say, well, God was in Christ and he robed himself in flesh. But let's, let, let's change the flesh for a moment. Instead of God robing himself in his flesh, it's now Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so now when I look at everything that he was in this condition, it must also be applied to this condition. What he did, I can do. How he lived, I should live. How he walked, I should walk. So much so that when the world looks on saying, I want to see the Father. Please show me the Father. I should live in such a way where I can look at them and say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because me and my Father are in such a relationship. We're one. We're so intimate. We're so close. I know him. He knows me. He talks to me. I talk to him. I know his nature because it's become my nature. I know his heart because it's become my heart. So it's not just God in flesh, but it is 
God in Christ, Christ in me, and that is the hope of glory. I truly believe that I cannot be completely oneness apostolic if I've only got half of the equation. I've got to get the other part of the equation. I've got to get the total picture. It's got to be God in Christ and then Christ in me. This world is not looking for God in Christ anymore. What they're looking for is Christ in me. They're looking for Christ in you. They're looking for the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to get in where they live, to get down in the muck and the moly of, of right where they're at, to get down in their situations and their problems and saying, well, I'm not just talking to you about some lofty thing that you can't see and you can't touch, but I'm talking to you about someone who came like you and I'm in his place. I'm his replacement body if you will I have God in Christ and Christ in me you want to know what the father's like talk to me I have his nature I walk like he walks I live like he lives back to the flesh issue if John said that he dwelt among us or he tabernacled himself among us meaning that it was God put in flesh and it took the crucifixion on the cross for that flesh to be removed. What that means is that at the resurrection, while he was in flesh, he decided, hey, time to turn the light back on. Up to, uh, to death, burial, and then resurrection, he lived for 33 and whatever years with the light turned off. I'm not taking advantage of any godlike attribute I have. I want to show them by example. I want to be just like them. I want to walk like they're going to walk so that they... a are without excuse. Matter of fact, there's a passage in Scripture where Jesus says that, except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. That word he is actually in italics, denoting the fact that it was not included in the original language. So what he literally is saying, except you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. So he is directly connecting who you understand God to be to your own salvation. So my I, uh, understanding, my idea, uh, what I can wrap my mind around about who he is and the nature that he has, has to get down in me enough to affect my salvation. And so when I read that passage, I don't think that academically is sufficient. I don't believe that if I can write a paper about it and submit it to a professor, that it's going to affect my salvation. I think what Jesus is ultimately saying is, is that when you understand God in Christ and it translates to Christ in me, it's going to affect the way that you walk. It's going to affect the way that you live. It's going to affect the way that you talk. And it's going to affect your salvation. It's going to change the way that you live. So when he looked at them that day and said, except you believe that I am, I think he's going beyond, do you have an academic understanding? He's saying, do you have a relationship? Do you really know enough about me for it to change your life first? So we have to get to that flesh. And if John said, it is God in flesh, and he tabernacled, and he's alluding back to the Old Testament tabernacle, he's saying that this flesh here was a veil for the glory of God while he was on the earth. But we know when he took his last breath and the earth shook and the veil was written in the temple we know he's saying once and for all it's done he turned the light back on and so for those few years after that uh, before he uh, ascended he is walking in his glorified state he's got the light on matter of fact when he goes back to talk to to um, Thomas the Bible specifically says that the windows and the doors were locked but he entered into the room Donating that when uh, in his glorified body, he said, you can lock all the windows, you can lock all the doors, but I'm in my glorified state now. I'll come through the walls if I have to. I'll transcend whatever I have to. That's letting me know that no matter what situation is, how blocked in I have myself, no matter how much I push people and God away, if you really want him in, he can get through all of that and get right to where I'm living. But it extends further than that. Because if it is God in flesh, God in Christ, and he was veiled, and now it is Christ in me. The reason 1 Peter 2 and 21 says that he lived a life as an example that we should follow in his footsteps, particularly suffering, is because it's easy for us to live in such a way where we've got it on the inside but nobody knows. And the only thing that lets the glory of God be released into the world is if we follow him in that footpath and we go to the cross and we have our time at the Garden of Gethsemane and we crucify this flesh and when we crucify this flesh, we are likening ourselves to the same path that he followed. Because when his flesh was torn and the veil was torn, it opened up a possibility for a world to be saved. And if we are the replacement 
today for what Jesus was then, we have to get the light on. We've got to get the flesh torn. We've got to crucify the flesh. We've got to open up ourselves and say, God, it's not about what's on the outside. It's about what's on the inside. And we've got to pray, God, whatever you have to do, open me up and get it back on. Get it back on. Get it back on. Stand with me. What challenges me in, in, in all of this is the potential, the potential for who I could be. I challenge the class this. I'm going to challenge you this morning, this evening. And what I'm about to say is going to come across as probably the most arrogant statement you've probably heard from this pulpit. I guarantee it. But bear with me. If you knew the things that God wanted to do with me, if he can get the light on in my life, it would blow your mind. If you knew the promises he'd given me, if you knew the prophecies I've, I've received over my life, if you knew the dreams that I've had, you would think, wow, this guy is amazing. Because I've received them. I've heard them. I've seen it. I've tasted it. I've seen some of it come to pass, not all of it. And I stand in awe at myself going, wow, like, I have those dreams. And I, I almost feel like the Apostle Paul sometimes thinking, out of the abundance of revelation, but if you were honest with yourself and the rest of us, and you started articulating to us the things God spoke to you about you, and the dreams and visions that God has given you for your life, and, and the things that you're going to be involved in, and, and the miracles, signs, and wonders are going to take place because, because you're submitted, we would all have to agree it would blow our mind. And it really puts us in the same boat, that we all have things that God has promised us. We all have things that... God has put in our life that we are going to do. And when we sit back in our own finality and, and, and frailty, we look back and go on, how in the world, God, are you ever going to do that with me? How can you possibly accomplish that? I feel that every day about being in Clinton, Missouri. Unqualified, inexperienced. I, don't have, I tell the church on a regular basis, I don't have a clue what I'm doing, but I'm not standing in the pulpit because I do. I'm doing it because he did. And I'm standing there because I had a vision and I had a dream. So I'm going to throw myself out there because this is what we have to get to. I want to have God not just in Christ, but I want to have Christ in me. And if Christ is going to be in me, I've got to get the light bulb turned on. Henry County that I reside in has 22,000 people, has eight different communities. We're going to build a church in all eight communities, and I'm going to reach 22,000 people. Why? Because God said it. It's, it. it's not because of this. It's because of this. This right here has nothing to do with it. Never has. I've tried to make it that, you know, the whole works of the flesh thing we talked about. I, I've tried to make this thing work. I work harder and try harder. And, and we talked about systems. I try to get all my systems in place and realize that we've we got to change them. We've got to change them and try to map my mind out and, and get my priorities straight and, and all that. And I come back to the same thing. i got to get back and i got to get that flesh torn and i got to get that light turned back on. Why? Because the world is not looking for God in Christ anymore. They're looking for Christ in me. They're looking for Christ in you. And so the understanding of the revelation of the oneness of Jesus cannot just be an academic understanding where you can point to the passage and say, well, I know who he is. We've got to get it down inside. Oneness, it was not just God in flesh. I believe there's a level of oneness that we have with him. We have with him. Your pastor called me, hung up the phone, the invitation to come. I heard the words of believe of prophet T.W. Barnes say in my mind. I heard him say it years ago, but it started replaying in my mind. He said that the last revelation that the world will receive is the revelation of, of the name of Jesus. I think that's what Jesus was getting at when he said, except you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. It's about the revelation of the name of Jesus. I truly believe that in order to be apostolic, I don't just say I believe in oneness. I think it's something I have to be. I am one with him, at least striving to be. God in Christ and Christ in me. Anybody in here right now see the potential, see the long term? If God is stepping to the bow of the ship and saying peace to the storm, then you can. 
if God is, is looking at the situation and he's casting out devils and he's laying hands on the sick, he's literally saying, be like me. Do like I did. Matter of fact, he said, I'm going to be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, I'm just the first to do this. I'm the first to walk in flesh and be submitted to the Father like this. I'm the first to, to lay hands on the sick. I'm the first to cast out devils. I'm the first to do all these wonderful things. And then he looks around and says, but where, where are all my siblings at? I'm just the first among many brethren. Where are the rest of them at? I'm asking you here tonight, where's the rest of them at? Where's the rest of them? He's really just our older brother walking as an example for us. But he's looking around saying, where are the brethren at? Where are their sisters at? I didn't want to be the only one. I wanted someone to do this with me. Do it just like me. I wanted you to literally be like me. Be Jesus to the world. If your heart is after that, why don't we spend a few minutes seeking the face of God? Maybe there's some tearing of the flesh that's required. Maybe, maybe there's revelation that was received tonight that, that is just academically, and that's fine. Maybe that's what you needed tonight. But maybe it goes beyond that for some where, where you're wondering, what can I do? Where do I fit in? Who am I called to be? What am I supposed to do in the kingdom of God? And I want to rip the veil off and let you know that the potential is there. What you can be in the kingdom of God goes beyond where you've been and what you've done. There's a place for you in the kingdom of God. If you can get the light turned on, get the flesh moved out of the way, you can become something that the world looks at and says, when you look at them, you can see the Father. They're just like Jesus. They've got the nature of Jesus. They've got the likeness of Jesus. They looked at the disciples that day and they said they were unlearned and ignorant men, but we know that they have been with Jesus. The world is not looking for God in Christ, but the world is looking for Christ in us because that is the only hope of glory. Hallelujah.